0: The Gist is brought to you by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper mattresses come with free delivery and returns within a 100-day period. And get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash gist and using the promo code gist. And by Realty Shares. With Realty Shares, you can invest in professionally vetted residential and commercial real estate projects across the United States. Browse all the investments at no cost once you're qualified, invest as little as $1,000 per transaction, and diversify your portfolio by visiting realtyshares.com gist. The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: It's Tuesday, November 3rd, 2015. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The Monday night football game last night, Panthers and Colts, uh, took place in Bank of America Stadium in Charlotte. So some protesters... Well, the way their press release puts it, they intentionally dangled from the roof. I don't know about that, but they dropped a banner that read B-O-A, dump Dominion, we are Cove Point, there are no... There are no spaces in that .org, and if you went to We Are Cove Point, the site crashed because this was an ill-conceived gambit from the get-go. In fact, the stadium announcer at Bank of America Stadium reacted exactly as a stadium announcer would. Here's some of that. All right, fans, please welcome back your black and blue crew as they toss out some more t-shirts. When faced with the prospect of a t-shirt cannon versus some abstract idea of Cove Point, what is that? The game's in Charlotte, Cove Point's in Maryland, with this tenuous Bank of America connection. You gotta go for the t-shirt, right? And I didn't understand, I wanted to understand what the sign was, but I didn't. And I wanted to understand what We Are Cove Point is, but the press release the site went back online, is very opaque because there is no punctuation. And at several points in this sentence, depending on where you pause, it means very different things. We are Cove, Point Demands, Bank of America Stop Financing, Dominions, Cove Point LNG Export Terminal, and Other Fracked Gas Infrastructure. I don't know what that means. I do know this the Panthers won in overtime. On the show today, I will take one great idea and will be inspired. And I will give you four good and one really, really good ideas. Huh? How's that? A spiel with a lot of good ideas. But now here's a really good idea. It's Professor John Faf. It's the second part of our interview about mass incarceration. Now, Faf, the P, is silent, but the clarion call for reform is not. Do you like how I did that? Here's part two. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. The key selling points of Casper are quality, cost, and convenience. I will now touch on all three. Quality, great mattress. They combine premium latex foam with memory foam, but a description or a name of the type of foam, that's not gonna convince you it's quality. When I get to convenience, that's what's gonna convince you. But first, let's talk about cost regular mattresses cost $1,500. Casper mattress, $500 for a twin size mattress. And it goes up from there, $600 for a twin XL, $750 for a full size, $850 for a queen, $950 for a king size. But it's a lot cheaper than the regular mattress. Now here's where it all comes together. It's completely risk-free. You order it for delivery. It shows up and keep it, and sleep on it, and return it within a hundred day period. It's that simple, so you could experience the quality for yourself. It is an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. The risk-free trial sells the mattress. Try sleeping on it for a hundred days with free delivery and painless return. They're made in the USA. And you could also get $50 off any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com gist and using the promo code GIST. We gotta say terms and conditions apply, but I also gotta say if you try the mattress, I think you'll like it. More Americans are in prison in the United States than live in the states of North Dakota, South Dakota, and Wyoming combined. There are over 2.2 million Americans in prison, meaning the U.S. has a quarter of the world's imprisoned people. Yesterday, in announcing White House initiatives to assist former felons rehabilitate, President Obama laid out the scope of our problem. More than 600,000 inmates are released each year. Around 70 million Americans have some sort of criminal record, 70 million. That's almost one in five of us. Actually, it's more than one in five. But releasing nonviolent, small-level drug offenders, which the administration did this week, did a toe-touch into that, that is just a small fix. As our guest, Professor John Pfaff of Fordham University, told us yesterday, low-level, small-time drug sentences are about 1% of the entire U.S. population when you add federal and state prisons. So in this part two of our talk with Professor Pfaff, whose research focuses primarily on empirical matters related to criminal justice, especially criminal sentencing, I asked him about the idea of rehabilitation. These days, what prisons are used for, let's be honest, is, you know, a critic would say warehousing, incapacitation. That's what criminologists call it. But what about rehab? Rehab. Is anyone talking about rehab? Are there strides being made in using prison as a source of rehabilitation? Rehabilitation is actually very interesting because, one, it's coming back.
0: Mm -hmm. And I think it's coming back because we're getting better at doing it. Now, again, every generation says, no, no, this time we figured it out. And then 50 years later, we realize they didn't figure it out. So I'm sure when I'm older, I'll be eating my words for saying, no, no, this time I think we have a better idea. But I think we're doing a better job. What's also very interesting is that Americans consistently say in surveys that they actually favor rehabilitation and second chances. Yeah. And the politicians don't. And so a standard acad- academic response is, well, the politicians are idiots. Like, if we could just teach them what they're missing, they would embrace this. And that's wrong. Right? They get elected time after time because they know exactly what they're doing. They're very smart. And to say they're, they're just missing the point is a bad thing about academics. The catch is the fact, and you sort of touched on this a minute ago, Crime is this kind of topic where it's called the, the pretentious academic term is is low information high salience which just means we don't pay high, attention low information high salience. salience so we don't really pay attention we don't really know what's going on we only pay attention to that one shocking case mm-hmm. right to date myself, like the Willie Horton effect. right? No one knows how that, that program that, that Dukakis from Poly class? Class, yeah. yeah that, was, class. that was three strikes yes. in California, yes. right? You no, know, we don't pay attention to how well a program works, but if one person in that program recidivates in, in the sufficiently shocking way, we vote based on that one approach. Mm-hmm. And politicians know this, right? So they tend to be tougher on crime than we want them to be because we don't reward them for their programs at work. We just punish them for the one random error they can't prevent. And I think the biggest mistake reformers are making today is that they're trying to change the laws without changing the system that passes the law. Right, right now, the system is kind of in favor of being s- smarter about crime. Right. But this system gave us these tough laws, and if crime goes up, it'll give us these tough laws again. Right? My favorite example is in 1970, Congress abolished all mandatory minimums for drug crimes. George H.W. Bush, who was then a rep from Texas, got up on the floor of the House and said, it's important to get rid of mandatory minimums for drug crimes. Then over the 80s and 90s, when he was VP and president, they brought them all back in and then some. And now Congress is trying to abolish all their mandatory minimums again. And so I just I'm going to sit back and wait. And in 2025, I bet Congress will bring all the mandatory right back if crime goes up. Right? Because no one's fixed underlying sort of po- po- political problems that cause this to happen. And I don't have a good answer for that. Yeah. It's an incredibly intractable problem. But no one's even talking about that. So I think Americans actually do like rehabilitation. But we have a political system that makes it very hard for politicians to actually implement that because we punish them sort of unnecessarily hard when the
1: program inevitably makes a mistake. What about helping the ex-convict? become a more productive member of society, taking away the stigma, making it less of a disqualification.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think things like ban the box have a lot to be said for them. And the idea of ban the box, of course, is that right now in most states you have to check a box on a form saying I've been convicted of a felony. Uh, now the idea is the fact that that criminal record becomes much harder to to observe, right? And in fact, the president has just issued an executive
1: action for a federal ban the box.
0: There's also people making the argument the fact that we talk a lot about second chances, but no one even know no one even had a first chance, right? Like we sort of know once you go to prison, let's make things right. Well, why not try to solve the problem before they go to prison, right? To the extent that prison crimes are caused by poverty and other problems, why not try to tackle those root problems? The obvious counterargument is the fact that poverty and racism existed in the 60s and the 50s when prisons were a lot lower, so they don't necessarily drive the prison population. But yeah, I mean, I think if you really want to start tackling this, if anything, what we need to look at is understanding sort of what the DAs do, the prosecutors, right? They sort of have all the power here. Um, and right now, they just tend to be very, very aggressive. They file a lot of felony cases. Um, between the 1990s and 2000s, the number of arrests, total number of arrests in this country fell and the number of felony cases went up. So mm-hmm. arrests fall by 10%, felony cases rise by 40%. Right? So, so with fewer and fewer people entering the system, the DAs are sending more and more of them to court for felony cases. And once they file a felony case, the same
1: fraction tend to go to prison. But, you know, if you have a lot more cases, you have a lot more people going to prison. So, so that and- would suggest that the big cause of the rise in prison is not over-aggressive policing. It doesn't matter if there's 10% more or 10% less of policing, it's the DA sending people to prison. They seem
0: to be the people at the heart of this, and they are the ones And you want get... to
1: talk about high salience. I mean, DAs are much more sensitive than even a politician to a to a criminal committing a crime again or not getting sufficient punishment. Right.
0: Although it's kind of interesting The thing about the DAs because they generally don't lose elections. They lose elections because of something shocking. So when Joe Hines lost in Brooklyn last year, two years ago, Mm -hmm. he was the first sitting DA in Brooklyn to run for re-election and lose in over a century yeah right they just generally tend to win but yet you're right that they pay very close attention to this they're they're and they're you know they're very independent right they're elected by the county they report to no one no one can tell them what to do they have tremendous power to decide who gets charged who doesn't get charged what they get charged with and no one no reform movement is really looking at the da's at all like no national politician has talked about you know here are like let's focus on like what new about the da's and you know the state level no one's really paying attention to them And yet they have they sort of determine who's going who's not we want to come back
1: we have to adjust their behavior and it seems to me that except in the few cases where da's are serving a majority black community that they have to be tough on something like even if a da in their heart wants to lower uh incarceration overall they're gonna that won't be their brand their brand will be i'm tough on drunk driving or i'm tough on sex offense to try to sell yourself as a reformer it's an everyday thing it's like building a wall but to get wrecked by that you just one brick of the wall goes away and then this everything that you've built crumbles so it's a lot easier just to be a hard ass than to say work with me trust me we're not going to have any problems one guy reoffends oh, that's it your whole agenda is out the window right that is very much the risk that that da's and
0: judges and, and legislators face i think also you know There's this movement out there now called Right on Crime, which Mm -hmm. is sort of the conservative effort to embrace reform. And I think the conservative movement for reform oftentimes sort of gets unfairly stereotyped. So I think there is a big part of it that is let's cut costs. But I think it's, it's a more complicated movement than that. I think there are. Evangelicals there who genuinely believe in like redemption and second chances. Um, there's a lot of Republicans who act not a lot, but there are several major Republican leaders who themselves have been to prison, like Chuck Colson, who runs this group called the Colson Ministries. Now he went to prison after Watergate. Uh, Bernie Carrick obviously went to prison uh, a couple years ago. And there's a sense they come Poor out. New
1: York Police Commissioner.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's a sense that they come out realizing that prisons are not sort of what we stereotype them to be. That they're much more sort of ordinary and, and non-threatening, and, and therefore they're more embracing this idea of reform. Right on crimes. sort of their, their slogan is let's not lock up the people we're mad at. Let's lock up the people that scare us. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think a smarter way to put that is let's not lock up the people we're mad at. Let's lock up the people who, who pose an actual risk going forward. And right? I think we start of focusing much more on sort of using prison as sort of a forward looking like who actually poses a risk and thinking carefully about what's risky. Right. So, you know committed a crime when you're 29, like you're on the verge of aging out of things. Maybe that's not the time to throw away the key. And a lot of our laws are written the exact wrong way, right? So it's very hard to get a third strike until you're in your late 20s, early 30s. It takes a long time to build up that serious record, right? So we tend to throw the book at you right as you're about to sort of age out of crime, or more likely to, which is why California, when they're letting out all these strikers early, are discovering that there's no their, their recidivism rate is significantly lower than sort of the, the default California average because they're older, right? They're just, they don't pose this risk anymore. And I think if we sort of try to reframe it as, you know, move away from sort of this punitive, punished, we're mad at you, you deserve this. And more thought of prison as, you know, there's people we just need to detain because they, they pose a risk we can't control well enough. I think that would give us the room to make bigger cuts, especially with the evidence that rehabilitation always works better outside of confinement than inside confinement. So you don't gain anything. If your goal is rehabilitation, being in prison doesn't advance that at all, and there are ways we could try to sort of you know, increase use of halfway houses and other things that allow us to sort of put you more in the community, um, but allow us to still focus on sort of treatment and, and and training programs
1: like that. Last major area I want to talk to you about is the idea of the uh, prison industrial complex. Now, on the one hand, you can't you can't say that there's not something there. I mean, a lot of people are making money on building prisons. On the other hand, when a society determines this is what we want, and I think to some extent, our society has made its choice, like with the post office, there's probably a postal industrial complex and we want our garbage collected. So there's a garbage industrial complex. How much is you know the money driving it? Or is there any way as an academic to figure that out?
0: Yeah. So the main way we hear about money is through the, the idea of the private prisons, right? They drive this process. And they are one of the more overstated causes and drivers of, of imprisonment. So, you know, only about 7% of U.S. prisons are in a private prison, right? So some percent are in public prisons. And over half of those in private prisons are in just five states or six states. And the feds is around 20%. But for the feds, I think it's much more of an ideological limit. They just like they believe in contracting. If we didn't have private prisons, they just find other prisons and mm-hmm. put them in. Um, so they're not a major actor right, in terms of total numbers. The counterargument people say then is, well, how about all the lobbying they do to make things tougher? Right. And they lobby a certain amount. Right. You know, they, But as a, in the grand scheme of things, they don't lobby that much and they oftentimes lose to the public sector. Uh, so one of the big private prison groups tried to uh, privatize all of Florida's prisons. Florida's Senate was predominantly Republican, very much in favor of this. Yet they lost by one vote in Republican dominated Senate because the public prison guard union lobbied to say, look, we're going to lose jobs. They got all the Democrats and just enough Republicans to kill the bill. Uh, the same company tried to privatize in Tennessee is actually its home state. The CCA's home state is Tennessee. In the 90s, they tried to privatize the Tennessee prisons. Bipartisan support in the legislature. The bill looked like it was going to sail through until the public guard unions stepped in, and then the bill died in, in the legislature. So yeah, the private prisons lobby, but at the same time, the public sector lobbies a lot too, right? You've got the prison guard unions fighting for tougher sentences. You have legislators who actually need their prisoners to maintain their seats, right? So in upstate New York, a lot of, until recently, in most states outside of four states now, New York being one of the four, in the other forty-six states, prisoners count as living in the district where they're in prison. Yeah, right. And
1: for a Charlie lot of uh, district included Rikers.
0: <laughs> right. Yes. Right. And so for upstate Republicans, that was basically you know transferring seventy thousand people from New York City and Buffalo transferred upstate, and a lot of cases like their district required those people to not get rezoned. Yes. Right. Or there are stories, horrible stories about you know night. Amish country counties in Pennsylvania, they get millions of dollars in federal minority job training programs because the, the African-Americans in the prison who can't qualify for the funds push their like race balance like yeah. just enough to qualify for money. right? So for all this talk about you know, how bad the private sector is fighting for these things, the public sector doesn't deserve a pass. They have a very strong incentive on the public side to fight for these prisons too. And so, yeah, there's private lobbying, but I think the public lobbying is much more aggressive, much more effective. It seems to succeed more often. To me, it's, it, there's this public sector side to it that is far more important than the private sector. So, you have both you know, Bernie Sanders' interesting bill to abolish private prisons and Hillary Clinton saying she's going to defund private prisons, neither of which I think would work in practice. But more important, I I'm make like, why are we talking about awful pu- private prison conditions? Rikers in New York is a horrible prison. Pelican Bay in California, which is public, they would stage gladiator fights mm-hmm. that the guards would film. I mean, the publics are pretty terrible. They have a strong incentive to to lobby hard. So I'm not entirely swayed by sort of this prison industrial complex idea. I think, I think there's a lot of political clout fighting for prisoners. Right? I just think a lot of it's on the public sector side, not the private. And the marginal contribution to the privates
1: is, is, I think, overstated. Is there one myth you'd like to explode or one interesting fact you'd like to have listeners think about?
0: I think the fact I sort of find myself forced to push back against the most is we have this idea that we can get ourselves out of this problem by just attacking the incarceration of drug offenders. And that's just not going to work. right? Only about 15% of state prisoners are in prison on a drug charge. 55% are in prison on a violent crime charge, 20% on a property crime charge. That's not to say that focusing more on treatment won't have a bigger effect than just that 15%, right? Plenty of people are in prison for property and violent crimes because of underlying drug addiction. But right? our thoughts: are we we simply stop arresting people for drugs we can get ourselves out of this problem. It's not going to work. It's going to disappoint. For the feds, they're about 50%. It can matter, right? But for the 88% who are in state prisons, at some point, We're going to have to start asking how are we going to treat violent offenders differently, and no one is other than a handful of politicians. No one is really talking about that at all. Uh, Cory Booker is probably the only national politician who has even said at some point we got to approach violent offenders. And Ta-Nehisi Coates actually said that too—that you know the low-level drug Mm -hmm. offender—they're not the solution, right? Great, let's get them out. They shouldn't be there. It's a terrible waste. And I agree. People say, well, isn't that still great to get them out? Yes, I agree. They shouldn't be there, right? I'm not saying I don't care, right? But if you want to solve the problem, this is not the solution. You're gonna to have to start asking these really tough questions about violent offenders and the risks we're willing to bear to to let some of them out and how to trade those those trade-offs that, that raises.
1: That's both an explosion of a myth and a great idea. John Pfaff, Professor of Law at Fordham, thank you so much. Thank you so much. If you're looking to diversify your portfolio, real estate is often a great way to diversify. really depends on what you have in your portfolio to begin with. But if you're looking for a real estate investment, look no further than RealtyShares.com at RealtyShares.com slash gist. Realty Shares is an online real estate investment marketplace that allows accredited investors, so you have to qualify, to invest as little as $1,000 per transaction in residential and commercial real estate projects all across the U.S. Thousands of investors have used the platform to invest in real estate deals that are sourced and vetted by experienced investment professionals. You can browse. You can invest in minutes all from your computer. Go to RealtyShares.com dot com slash gist to create your free account today. And now the spiel, some good ideas. Joe Nocera, op-ed columnist for the New York Times, is leaving that post. He's going to do something with sports. And he left us with some good ideas, including one, I think, great idea. So he wrote about how Michael Bloomberg is worth, whatever, $40 billion. And he's not really getting a lot of bang for his buck in his opposition to guns. So Nocera says, you know what Bloomberg should do? Buy a gun company. Smith & Wesson can be had for like a billion dollars. And you don't even just shut it down like what Bill Cosby did with the Little Rascals videos. You actually reform from within. You innovate. You have gun locks. All that sort of thing. Tell the NRA to shove it. I love that idea. Now, I've had some good ideas in my life and mostly they get ignored. I'll tell you what my best idea is. In fact, we probably cut it out from the gist a couple times just because I tell people who are in a position to maybe act on the idea and they get really nervous it's such a good idea. Gitmo prisoners, we're trying to release them. I say plant a chip in them. This is a great idea for a couple reasons. If you plant a chip and they really are bad actors and they were going to go back to their nefarious comrades, well, if they know they have a chip, it dissuades them, even if they suspect it. If they don't know they have a chip, we get a bead on them. This is such a good idea that not even doing it, just telling them we're doing it, that also is a really... I don't even know what's the better idea, but everything about this idea except maybe the civil liberties, but you know what? This is why it's a great idea. Everything about this idea is great. The civil liberties concern, it's not as judged against what we think of civil liberties, it's judged against Guantanamo. It's much more civilly liberous than what's going on in Guantanamo now. Great idea. But I watch all these debates, and you know, all these candidates say they they have great ideas. But they all have the same ideas, right? If it's on the Democratic side, their idea is, how much do I love gay marriage? If it's on the Republican side, it's, how much am I like Ronald Reagan? How bad is this Iran deal? Although, who could shout louder? Who could phrase it better how much they hate the Iran deal, right? And it's, I understand you're running for president. You got to have a tax plan. But where are the good ideas Not the new Gingrich colony on the moon, but the good ideas, the weird ideas. Like I'd have, I'm going to give you three and any candidate can use these. And even if it doesn't get you into the White House, it can make you a czar of these ideas, but it will increase your popularity, at least double it or quintuple it if you're Baba Jindal. Here we go. One, puppy mills. You should ban puppy mills. Now, the companies, the puppy mills themselves are going to be against it. That's good. A key to any good idea is it can't be so good that everyone says, well, that's obvious because then everyone else will steal your idea. So it's good to have a little opposition. It's good to have an enemy. Hey, you can buy a puppy from a breeder. You could buy it from a friend. A lot of ways to get a puppy. Just no more puppy mills. That's one idea. Second idea, daylight saving time. Oh, this is so terrible. Maybe back when we were an agrarian culture, it made a little sense. Now the big beneficiaries are golf courses. There is some evidence that golf courses make a little little more money during daylight saving time. But you know, we're we're not farmers anymore, but you know what? Almost all of us are motorists. And if we're not, we're people who are walking on the streets next to motorists. And more darkness, less light, gets people killed. How many? I turn to the journal Accident Analysis and Prevention, and they say 170 pedestrians annually are killed because of daylight saving time, and 200 drivers of vehicles are killed because of daylight saving time, more darkness. Now, the PTA is against it. That's good. It's good to have opposition. It's also good that they're wrong. They can be brought around to this. You know, you throw a bake sale at these people, they can be bought off pretty easy. But I understand they're worried about kids walking to school. But kids walking home from school in darkness, which descends at, what, 4.42? That is also a problem. Daylight saving time is a killer. Doesn't help us anymore. And I got a third one right along these lines. Pennies. Pennies are terrible. The only reason I ever have pennies, and I'm sure you're like me is just to avoid future pennies, right? Leave the house with three of them in case change ends in an eight. I'm clean. It's the only thing that we keep so we don't get more of that thing. Well, there's an analogy. A lot of parents of small children find that those children have a sort of birth control effect. I get that, but they're they're like pennies, small and clean and with tiny heads in that regard too. Do you know pennies cost more than two cents to make? There are five billion pennies made annually. There, most of the coins made in the United States are pennies. And do you know how much we waste with the pennies, not just minting them, but cash transactions? So the U.S. Federal Reserve did a study. Using pennies wastes 120 million hours of time per year. If you multiply by the median hourly income, it costs us $2 billion a year just to have pennies. Now, again, like the PTA, like the puppy mills, it helps to have an enemy. And in this case, you do. The Zinc Lobby. Now, the Zinc Lobby is one of those things that if it were literal, I would love to visit it. But since it's figurative, I loathe it. I also understand that you can't always beat a Zinc Lobby. By the way, you go into public service, you go into public life, you get a law degree, you become a Zinc Lobbyist. What the hell is wrong? Something's gone wrong along the way. But here's my fix. Let's say you can't get this bill, because some people have tried. Obama himself is not four pennies. And the guy loves Lincoln, right? You try to get the bill through, it doesn't work. So what you do is you attach a rider. I'm not actually sure how that works, but I know that when bad things happen, it's because someone attached a rider. So you attach a rider, You, you sneak in a law and it says this, even if the bill to ban pennies doesn't pass, the zinc lobbyists have to be paid in pennies. Now you will not get any quality zinc lobbyists taking the job after that. All right. I hope I helped. Unlike Joe Sarah, I am not leaving my beat. I do not wait for the last issue to give you some good ideas. This is what I do every day. You could thank me for a penny for my thoughts, but that is a horrible insult. You're welcome, America. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi has a platform. It's to disallow the sale of the commodities mortar and brick over the Internet. Mm-hmm. Executive producer Andy Bowers backs a bill that would limit umbrella circumference based on urban density. It's a formula. It's a little complex. It's going to save some eyes, though. The gist. We're campaigning on the promise of attacking those long lines at the airport. Now I can't really do much about them, but here's what I can do. I would pass a bill that would change the yellow footprint on the floor of the hands above the head full body scanner. I would change that footprint so it looks like socks and not shoes because they're mocking you with the shoes. um peru de and thanks for listening.